Um, before we jump in tonight, one of the things I want to do immediately as we sort of get started is uh, every one of you guys should have a little piece of paper. And I put that piece of paper, we had, we had some people put that piece of paper, I didn't do it, on your guys' chair for a reason. And what I want you guys to do is take that piece of paper, and there should be little pencils. If you don't have a pen already, um, some people bring pens to church. Um, I do. I bring a little mechanical pencil. Always have one with me. Always. And uh, number seven. It's my favorite. <laughs> Very particular on my mechanical pencils, number seven. If you don't have a pencil or something to write with, there are some little um, um, pencils. There's one little right on the, on the ground right here. Right here. There you go. There you go. You can pass those around. And there's another one on the ground right back there by that pole. And then there's another one right by that little... Um, table as you walked in. Grab a pencil and what I, if you don't have some sort of writing utensil in your hand, uh, make sure you get one and have that piece of paper. And I want to tell you what we're going to do with that tonight. So what I want for you to do is before we jump in, we're going to teach is I want you guys to throughout the evening as I'm teaching, as I'm sharing, um, what I want you to do is I want you to think of things maybe that are in your life that are sinful. And so one of the things that I want for you guys to be able to do is to write down on that piece of paper things that either uh, you have been defiled by in your life, things that are sins against you, or things in which you have maybe sinned against other people, things in which maybe you've defiled other people, areas in your life of offense to yourself, areas in which you look at yourself and think, I, I, I could be doing better, and I'm not. Uh, areas in your life in which you find yourself being offensive to other people, causing problems, causing uh, relationship issues and difficulties, things that you would sort of chalk up to sin, recognize as such, or areas of sin between you and God, areas of offense between you and God. So I want you guys to think about those things, and as they come into your mind as I'm teaching, I want you to write them down um, on one side of that piece of paper, and I'll tell you what we'll do with that at the end. So guys, that's your little... uh, project for the tonight for tonight while I'm teaching. So what we're going to do right now is I want to really talk about Jesus. Um, tonight is the night in which we're able to really commemorate the death of Jesus on the cross. Um, there's millions and millions of people worldwide that actually claim to be believers or Christians, even though throughout the history of the Christian church and even within Christianity today, There's a lot of people that disagree over all sorts of different things. There's all sorts of reasons why there are so many different denominations and different factions here and there. But one thing that everybody agrees on who names the name of Christ is they agree that Jesus died for their sin. So millions of people worldwide have either celebrated or commemorated or are currently now or at some point probably will... uh, in recognition of what today is about, in terms of considering the cross, considering what Jesus did for them. And that's what we're going to do here tonight, is we're going to consider what Jesus did for us on the cross. And it's one of those areas I think we oftentimes tend to look over. We don't really spend a lot of time really considering the cross, or contemplating the cross, or meditating upon the cross. I think just simply by nature of who we are, as Westerners, we have sort of this tendency to not want to uh, consider or spend a lot of energy upon things that are difficult for us to swallow, things that are hard. When you start talking about the cross and blood and death 
These are things that we don't like to really talk about, so it's a whole lot easier for us to sort of dismiss them from our minds and to talk about happy things, to talk about things that are nice. And so really what's happened is, is we, we as a culture, by and large, we have this mentality where we have a phrase that we use all the time whenever somebody asks us, how you doing? Our answer is, great, we're doing good. And we don't want to really reveal anything else. Or if something else is really going bad in our lives, we will never communicate that just simply because we would prefer to just keep things sort of on a surface level where everything is kind of stuck in this thin veneer of okay. And and yet what happens when we look at the cross, you realize everything that happened on the cross is tragic. It's horrible. It shocks us. It's devastating. And it's intended to be that. It's intended to provoke radical response. And oftentimes we talk about the love of God, and yet oftentimes we don't really understand the depth of the love of God. We have phrases where we say things like, you know, Jesus loves me and He died on the cross, and we say it with sort of a smile on our face and we're happy about it. And yet oftentimes I wonder how often do we really feel the pain, feel the lament, feel the, 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 just the weight and the heaviness of what the cross is all about. That's what I hope for us to be able to really consider tonight. It's to feel the weight. To feel the emotion. We're afraid of emotion in the West. We really are. We just we, we don't like to have to consider crying. We don't like to have to consider having strong emotion. And what I'm saying tonight is, is I hope by God's grace that can be changed. That we can just release ourselves to, to feel. To feel the cross. To feel the weight of it. To, to feel the pain of it. To feel the pain of our Savior. So with that being said, I want to jump into the text that I want to take a look at tonight. So if you guys have your Bibles, open up to the book of Mark, chapter 8. Mark chapter 8. There's a passage that I want to look at. In fact, it's also the same passage, passage that I'm going to basically springboarding on in uh, Sunday for Easter. And it's this little passage in which Jesus is with His disciples. He's talking to them, as He so oftentimes did, about ministry. And this particular occasion, while Jesus was with His disciples... Um, he's at this particular city called Caesarea Philippi. It was kind of a pagan city and it was a place where um, a lot of paganism had taken place and was going on. And Jesus brings his disciples there in Mark chapter 8. In this little dialogue that he's having with them, he says in about verse 27. And then Jesus went with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way he asked his disciples, who do men say that I am? And then they told him, John the Baptist. And the others said, Elijah. Others said, one of the prophets. So, first off, this is sort of the word on the street. Everybody has an opinion about Jesus. Some people think he's John the Baptist. Some people think he's a great prophet, maybe Elisha. So Jesus then turns to his own disciples that are following him, that are sort of the closest to him in relationship. He says, but who do you guys say that I am? We're in relationship together. We've been with each other. Who do you, my disciples, communicate or believe or think upon who I am. And it says in verse 29, and then he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And then Peter answered to him, he says, you are the Christ. And then Jesus strictly charged him that they ought to tell nobody. 
But the point that I want to make here is that when Peter was asked point, this poignant question, who do you say that I am? Peter speaks up and he communicates, Jesus, we actually think that you're the Christ. Now, this is really significant. The actual Greek word for the word Christ is Christos. It comes from a Hebrew word, which is uh, the word Mashiach. And this is a very important term in all sorts of in, in all sorts of beliefs within sort of the framework or the matrix of Judaism. It really comes from this idea that throughout history, all the way really back to the time of Adam and Eve, the Jews had this understanding from their Torah, from the Bible, that God one day was going to intervene. God was going to come into the world. God was going to do something great. They didn't know exactly what that was going to look like, how that was going to look like. But central to the belief of Judaism, they had this strong understanding that God made these promises. One of the examples would be like in Genesis chapter 3, immediately following the sin of Adam and Eve. God makes His promise. He says, uh, in one day the seed of the woman will come and He will crush the head of Satan. And also, prior to crushing the head of Satan, the serpent, or Satan, which is sort of a metaphor, interchangeable phrases and terms, that serpent will bite the heel of the seed of the woman. So in other words, there's this exchange that the seed of the woman will ultimately bring about defeat to the serpent. And yet, at the same time, he will be wounded in the process. And all the point from that time forward was sort of this hoping and this looking and this longing for that one day this person will come. Uh, you have all sorts of Old Testament pictures that would arise. For example, even with Moses. Moses comes on the scene and he's a great deliverer. And there's this phrase or this picture that comes up in the book of Exodus that says that one day God will raise up another like Moses who will be a deliverer. And so, again, faithful Jews had been longing for, looking for somebody that would be a deliverer who would come, and that would lead them out of bondage, that would lead them out of exile, that would lead them out of sort of the, 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 the tough life that they were in, just like the children of Israel were there in Egypt. Uh, you also have pictures, um, all sorts of pictures throughout the Bible that give these indicators. David is an example of another one. David was a great king and there is always this mentality or this thought that through the lineage of David, God would raise up another king. God would raise up another king through the lineage of David. So what you have is sort of this kind of composite picture in the minds of all faithful Jews, especially first century, who had the strong belief, central to the belief of Judaism. In fact, in some staunch uh, Orthodox Jews today, they have a strong desire that one day the Messiah will come. Little did they know that they, they failed to see that the Messiah has already come. But the point is, is that faithful Jews, especially up until the point of first century, they had this long-awaited expectation that God's going to make good on His promise. And the way that God's going to make good on this promise is He's going to bring the anointed one. The concept Mashiach, or the concept Christos, comes from the word that just simply means anointed. And usually what would happen in Judaism, when a king would sort of take his rightful place, or a priest would become newly sort of inducted into the ministry, or a prophet would be doing a good work, oftentimes what would happen is they would take the king or the priest, and they would anoint him with oil. And sort of this process of taking the oil or the flask and breaking it or pouring it out over the head of the priest, 
the oil would run down the face of the priest into his beard, down his chest, all the way down his body. I mean, they would just, it wouldn't just be like a little cross or a little bit on top of the, it would be all over their face. They would be drenched in oil. And that, that, that process was called Mashiach. It's called anointing. They would anoint that particular person. And so Jews, faithful Jews, had this anticipation, this hope that one day all of God's promises that He had made in the Old Testament, in the Torah, from Genesis all the way up to the last prophet, Malachi, that God would one day make good on His promise and He would send the Messiah. This person would actually come. And in their minds they had this idea that He would come and He would deliver us. He would set us free. He would be like Moses, a deliverer. He'd be like David and be a king. He'd be a prophet. He would preach great things. That's how they viewed him. And so you can understand why a lot of the disciples of Christ had a hard time understanding this. Because in their mind, their concept would be Messiah would come. And in the context of the day, he would get rid of all of their oppressors, which in that day their oppressors were the Romans. They would get rid of the oppression, get rid of all of the taxation, get rid of all of the harsh circumstances which they were subjected to because of Roman rule. And he would basically set up a brand new type of a kingdom in which one, in the order of King David, would become king. And that's how they viewed it. That the Messiah would play this role. And so here's what Jesus does. He asks his disciples on this road trip, Right, on this field trip, who do you guys say that I am? Peter answers, You are the Messiah. So we believe you are. We actually believe that you are the one that was promised from hundreds and hundreds of years ago past. That you are the fulfillment of the hope of all Israel. That's how Peter viewed it. All the other disciples, they viewed Jesus as this particular fulfillment. Of all of this expectation. What happens is now Jesus then goes on and begins to communicate some even further details about this. And this is where it gets a little bit more tricky in the text. What happens is the very next thing as Jesus says to them. He says in about verse 31. And then he began to teach them that the Son of Man. This word Son of Man or the phrase Son of Man was synonymous with the concept Mashiach. So Jesus says, I'm going to teach you that the Son of Man must suffer that he must be rejected by the elders and the chief, and also by the chief priests and the scribes, and then he would be killed. And then after three days he would rise again from the dead. And then it goes on to say in verse 32, and he said this plainly. Now obviously I'm not going to go into the rest of the text, but Peter basically pulls him aside and rebukes him. Jesus speaks very plainly, in no uncertain terms. He wants him to know very clearly what he's talking about. And what he's talking about could not be any more clear. Jesus is basically saying... The Messiah, the guy that you have been longing for, the one that you've been hoping for, He will come, He has come, I am Him. But what you have to understand about the Messiah is that He will not be necessarily meeting the expectations that you have thought or assumed that He would. Now were the Jews or you know the disciples wrong or incorrect? Not entirely. I mean they were correct. They were correct that Jesus would be a deliverer. They were correct that Jesus or the Messiah would be a king. So they were correct. The only thing was is that they were only partially correct. So they weren't completely accurate in their understanding of the Messiah. But Jesus goes on to point out that the Messiah, me, 
There's some very important things you got to understand. What will happen? He says, I, son of man, I will suffer. I will be rejected by the religious hierarchy. And then I will be killed. But then the third day, I will rise again. And that was the message that Jesus preached to them. That was the message Jesus spoke to them, sort of in this intimate setting. And this is what Jesus continued to do. But what I want you to see is the three words that Jesus uses here. For suffer, rejected, and then be killed are pretty significant. The first word that he uses is suffer. He says, I will suffer. It's actually the Greek word pasco. P-A-S-C-H-O. Pasco. And what it basically means is sort of this idea of being subjected to emotion or difficulty or hardship. It's actually a word that doesn't appear that much throughout the New Testament. It is a word that's also used by the great writer, the uh, philosopher Plato in his writings. And he used it in this particular way, which I think is significant. He used it in his writings to sort of give this picture of undergoing an experience. Think about this. Jesus is saying... I will suffer. I will experience something. And this is sort of locked into this larger concept of suffering. That I will suffer. I will feel pain. I will feel hardship. I will feel difficulty. This is very significant because if you've ever been in a place in your life where you've experienced really difficult, harsh, suffering circumstances... One of the most significant, most important things that can be helpful in aiding your recovery and aiding your growth back to wholeness or aiding even just sort of easing your mind in the midst of that suffering is to know that people that are close to you have actually gone through what you've gone through. You know what it's like you know, when you go through a difficult time and somebody comes up to you, you might not even know them that well, but they're just sitting there with you while you're sort of in that lament. And they're like, listen, I, I know what you're going through. I've been there. There's something about that that just sort of causes us to have at least some sort of momentary or temporary cessation of just sheer pain. And one of the biggest questions that oftentimes arises in our minds as believers is we sort of have this tendency to think maybe God has no clue or no way of understanding what I'm going through. He can't. He's up there. I'm down here. He's so different. There's a gulf between Him and myself. God is outside of this world. God lives in a spirit type of a body. I live in a physical body. God is distant. He's not... God doesn't, he's not neighbors with the people that I'm neighbors with. He's not roommates of the people I have to live with. He's not married to the ones that I'm have to be married to. He doesn't know. He doesn't understand. He has not experienced the things that I've experienced. Here's what Jesus says. He says, I'm going as the Messiah and I will experience. I will experience. I will suffer. I will feel the pain. I will feel the pain. How did Jesus suffer? There's just several different ways, a lot of different ways, but one of which is Jesus suffered by temptation. Jesus suffered by temptation. Here's a verse in the book of Hebrews, chapter 2, 8, 18, it says this, because he himself suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who suffer when tempted. 
I love this. This is like the writer of Hebrews is like, listen, Jesus suffered. One of the chief ways in which He suffered is in temptation. Have you been in that moment where sort of you're being tempted, maybe to do, do things that you know you ought not to be doing, or maybe you're being tempted away from things that you should be doing, but you're not doing, because you're being distracted. There's things that you just know you ought to be doing, but you're being tempted away from that. Those moments of temptation can be very hard. Very painful, very difficult. It's sort of this moment of tension where you're being pulled and tugged and it's hard. And the Bible describes it as sort of a suffering. Sort of a suffering. It says that Jesus suffered that. But it also goes on to say that even though He was tempted, He was tempted to power, tempted to fame, tempted to glory, tempted to pride, probably tempted maybe even sexually, tempted in, the Bible says, all ways He was tempted. Every single way we can imagine, every single way in which we are and have been tempted, that's how Jesus was tempted. Yet, Jesus never succumbed to the temptation and never sinned. But He suffered. He experienced that sense of suffering by being tempted. One of the other ways in which Jesus suffered was physically. Jesus was born into a world of suffering. He was born into a very small town. It was kind of one of those places sort of off the side of the road. You blink, you miss it. That's where Jesus grew up. It's where He was born. It's where He lived. He wasn't brought up or raised in any type of an affluent type of a family. Jesus lived, experienced all sorts of types of things that everybody else around Him had experienced. That was His life as He was being brought up. Um, he no doubt, as he got older, had to experience the types of you know mockery and types of things that you deal with as a as a young maybe preteen or teenager. No doubt, all of those types of things again still without sin. Jesus started his ministry at about age thirty, and for about three years went around all Judea preaching, teaching. He saw people, he felt their pain. Jesus felt their pain. That's a form of suffering, to actually see people on the verge of tears, see people in the midst of suffering, feeling their pain. He felt the sense of people making fun of Him and judging Him and criticizing Him. All the way to the point where Jesus finally was arrested towards the end of His ministry, at around the age 33, Jesus basically found Himself being confronted by the religious leadership. Uh, there's obviously major clashes. There was great jealousy that these people had against Jesus or for Jesus and His ministry. Jesus' ministry was growing. People were turning to Him. As at the same time they were turning away from the religious leadership, they became jealous. They moved in, played politics, got Jesus arrested. And during the particular time of what was called Jesus' trial, Jesus went back and forth to different leaders as He was tried. All sorts of charges were drummed up against Him. They were all false. But they needed something to basically arrest Him to execute their greatest desire, which was to have Him murdered. So on the night of His trial, what had taken place was Jesus basically had found Himself confronted by the, by the strongest, the most powerful leaders over Judaism in the world. And He finds Himself going face to face, head to head, toe to toe with these guys. Doesn't back down. But what happens is He finally surrenders Himself, as He did from the very beginning, to their own wills. And that meant basically that Jesus would be uh, scourged, 
one of the first things that happens is they would take him and they would scourge him. And the Romans scourging, even though the New Testament text doesn't give us a lot of definition about it or description about it, we know about this because of uh, different historical uh, background and proofs and evidences. Um, if you've ever seen the movie The Passion of the Christ, you know something to some degree of what had actually happened to Jesus on the night in which he was scourged. They would have taken the victim, they would have put his arms on some type of post and tied them there so that he had no way of protecting himself or putting his arm down. And while Jesus was there, probably either on his hands and knees and his arms up on this post, they would take what was called a cat, a cat of nine tails. And they would have basically little pieces of leather with little pieces of bone and stone and shards of pottery. That Its main purpose was to rip the flesh open and they would take this and they would rip it over Jesus' back, literally just stripping little pieces of meat off of His body for the purpose of humiliation and great pain. Uh, many times people that had uh, endured this type of uh, suffering through the scourging would oftentimes die just because of the scourging. And yet Jesus didn't die. By this particular time, Jesus' body would have been like a flayed piece of meat, bloody, Bruised his parts of his body that had just simply received the lashes without being torn open would have been a, a, a very gnarled piece of meat, and his body would have been sort of swollen. Uh, his face would have, at this point, would have just been completely maimed and destroyed. We're told, according to some of the other prophecies, they would have plucked out his beard. They would have punched him in the face. And at this point, Jesus' body probably would have begun to have sort of uh, been in constant convulsions. Probably barely even capable of walking. Barely even able to sort of move forward or to lift his head. He would have been sort of crouched over. This would have been part of the quote-unquote suffering that Jesus says, I must endure. And what had happened was, sometime after that type of punishment, they would have taken Jesus and given Him the cross member of the, uh, the cross beam of the cross, which is called the patibulum. They would have taken this and given this to Jesus. He would have been forced to carry this. And as He was walking through the streets of Jerusalem, He did not even have the strength to carry this cross member. Because Jesus, even though He was 33 years old, sort of in the prime of His youth, He was raised under His Father who was a carpenter. Jesus probably was very strong, very fit, had a healthy physique. Even though that was Jesus' body, because of the suffering and the torture that He had already endured up until this point, would have no longer been able to even carry the cross member. Jesus falls underneath the weight of it. Jesus falls under the weight of His own cross. And so a guy by the name of Simon picks up the cross and begins to carry that out to the portion of the city, just outside of the walls of the city of Jerusalem. They would have taken that out to a particular portion and at the place of execution, the place where they would oftentimes execute the person would be at a spot that would have been the most public location. The concept of being crucified on a cross, on a hill far away, up someplace where it's sort of out of the, out of the normal area, is completely false. The cross, Roman crucifixion, was always done in a place that was, it was one of the most common cross sections of culture and humanity. It would have been equivalent to taking a guy, crucifying him downtown San Luis Obispo, or right there on the pier at Pismo Beach. 
or at the mall, or right in front of Gottschalk's, or right in front of uh, Vaughn's. That would be the place where they would have executed him. And so as they would have taken his body, they would have put it up on the cross, and at that point they would take the nails and put them through his hand. They wouldn't put it through his wrist, probably somewhere around here. It would no doubt sever one of the arteries, or not only one of the arteries, but also one of the, the main um, nerves that go up all the way to the hand. And this would cause intense pain that would go from your hands all the way throughout your entire body. So on top of the, swell, the swelling of his body, on top of the disfiguration of his face, uh, on top of the crown of thorns that would have been drilled into his head, uh, Jesus' body would have been a bloodied mess at this particular point. It would have taken the cross and placed it up. To add insult to injury, the whole point of putting the cross in the center of uh, public location was for the purpose of public humiliation. That was the whole intention. It was to humiliate those who would stand against Rome. Don't mess with Rome. That was the message. Don't mess with our power. Don't mess with our strength. Don't challenge us. If you do, this is what would happen. They would oftentimes put an inscription over the top of the head of the victim, basically marking out their offense. In this case, the record would have read something like this. Jesus Christ the king of the Jews. That was his offense. And at that particular point, part of the suffering would continue because now what would happen, while he's there lying underneath the heat of the sun, his body being dehydrated, he would not be able to breathe because of the way the cross would work is that your body, the weight of your body would pull down and cause uh, an inability to be able to breathe your diaphragm would not be able to go in and go out, and therefore you would essentially suffocate. In order for you to get breath, you would have to push yourself up, which would mean to push against the nail that's already in your feet, and push your back against the wooden cross that was definitely rugged and horrible, and it would have just added even more pain to his back. But if a victim was able to breathe, that's how they had to breathe. And at this particular location, on the out, on just sort of the outskirts of the town, at this public location, all sorts of thugs, lowlifes, horrible, wicked type of people would come out there and they would gamble. They would gamble. And they would basically make bets and they would bet upon, you know, how long would it take for the victim to die. And they would sit there and just laugh and jeer and mock and spit. And the only recourse that oftentimes victims there on the cross would be able to do in terms of getting back at those people that are making fun of them and jeering them is they would either spit on the people that are laughing at them as they're down there. They would spit on them. Oftentimes they would urinate upon them because they were naked. And this was their way. This is their only bit of reprieve to get back at them. Oftentimes at the bottom of the cross because the bodies were so just... Uh, discontinent and just broken and destroyed and because the body at this time, especially Jesus's, would have gone into intense shock. Uh, he probably would not have had any control over his bowels. He probably would have defecated over himself. He probably would have had a pile of defecation and urine commingled with sweat and blood and tears on the bottom of the cross while these people would sit there and mock and jeer and laugh. This was part of the suffering that people who were crucified endured. The word crucifixion, we get the English word out of it, 
excruciating. Because it's the idea of intense, intense pain. That's what Jesus would have endured. That was what was meant when He uses the phrase, suffering. When He says, I will suffer. I will suffer. That's what I'm going to do. He knew that. His disciples had no clue. Had no clue. Goes on to say that not only did he suffer, but he was also rejected. He's rejected. The uh, Greek word that's used here is apodokizo, apodokimizo. It basically has this idea of. It's kind of a great word, but what it means is it's kind of made up of two words. One is to be tried by fire. It's this idea of proving or testing. But the first. Uh, Part of the word is apo, which sort of negates everything that's going to follow. Which this uh, dokizamo basically means to be tried by fire and to be found worthy. It's the idea of taking something that's valuable and testing it, checking it out. I mean, today, maybe in modern day concept, it would be like listening to a professor and you hear him and you realize, man, this guy knows what he's talking about. He's good. He's worthy. I can listen to what he has to say. I'm going to take the words that he has to say because he's got some good stuff to say. I trust this guy. Or be the idea of looking at something underneath a microscope and realizing, I think my theory has actually been proven fact. It's the idea of testing something and finding it to be worthy or valuable. So what it says here in the text is not only would Jesus suffer, but he would also be rejected. He would be rejected. Meaning that the religious leaders would hear what Jesus had to say. They heard it. They tested it. They scrutinized it. They checked it out. And at the end of the day, they just simply dismissed it and said, it doesn't pass the test. We don't accept it. It's not worthy. It's not good. We reject it. And that's the word reject. It's the same one that's also used in Mark chapter 12, verse 10. When Jesus makes a statement, He says this, Have you not read the Scripture, the stone that the builders have rejected has become the chief cornerstone? Jesus is saying, listen, I'm that chief cornerstone. I will be rejected. They will hear what I have to say, they will check me out, and they will find me unworthy. Can you imagine this? Wait, I just want you to feel the weight of this. God... The very Creator, He created the lungs, He created the minds of the religious leaders of the day. Created their hearts, kept their blood pumping through their bodies, kept their atoms together. Gave them eyes to see. Gave them oxygen that actually can be breathed. Has held the whole universe together. He made the law that they themselves taught. And he subjects himself to their scrutiny to the point where they hear what he has to say and they dismiss him. That's the irony of this whole story. Jesus says, not only will I suffer, but I will be rejected. I'll be rejected by the very priests, Levites, religious leaders that I've given life to. I'll be rejected. The final thing he says is I will also be killed. Apokino is the actual Greek word, meaning not just a death, 
but a violent death. Even in English we might say, so-and-so died. But the word died is sort of passive in a sense where it doesn't carry a lot of weight. Died could mean just a simple gentle close of their eyes and they die. That's not the word here in the Greek means. It means basically like a violent death. Jesus says, not only will I suffer, not only will I be rejected, but I will I will die. And it will be a violent death at the hands of angry people. I will die. I will die. First Peter chapter three verse eighteen says this For Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Which kind of asks the last question that I really kind of want to raise before we finish up here is really this concept of why did Jesus die? Like, what was the purpose of it? Uh, Throughout history, there's been all sorts of uh, speculation. Um, There's been all sorts of models or ideas that have been raised, one of which is what's called Christus Victor, which means Jesus is our victory. Christ is the victory. He is dying on the cross. has brought about victory, which is true. Or Christus Exemplar, meaning that Christ is our example. And truly, Jesus' death on the cross is used throughout the New Testament as an example. Uh, Paul uses it even for husbands loving their wives. He says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself for it. That's Christus Exemplar, meaning just as Christ gave His life, died for a church, that's an example for you to follow. And all of these things are true. But they're, they stem from the centrality of why Jesus died. Why Jesus died. And the answer, the true answer, why Jesus came, why Jesus died, is because love, He loves His fallen creation. And His fallen creation has brought about or has incurred God's wrath. And because God is a just God, He's a good God, He's a God that loves us, but what's happened is we've turned our backs upon Him. The Bible talks about that all we like sheep, we've gone astray. Uh, all of us have uh, fallen short of the glory of God. We've missed sort of this mark of God's perfection. And it's, and it's not just even so much that we all do evil. Because we grade by a scale. Have you figured that out yet? Have you determined that? Have you understood that in your life? Somewhere to pull you aside and be like... You know, how do you feel like you are? Are you good? Bad? I think I'm all pretty good. Most of us would say we're all pretty good. Because usually what happens is we end up looking at somebody else who's far worse than us. And what happens is we look at somebody who's far worse than us on a moralistic level, it's easy for us to come to better conclusions about ourselves. Right? And, and that's the problem. We, are, we, are, we have so deceived ourselves... The problem is that what we need to do is we need to look at God. How do we stand before God? How do we stand before a holy God that is always just, always right, always good? The answer is that we, we, we always sin. We always sin. We brought an offense to God. And this is not just simply sinful things that we do. It's even things that we don't do. It's even things in which we, we just don't even live Thankful lives. Being thankful to God. Being thankful for Him and what He's done for us. That basically what happens is you look out over the world, you see an entire creation of God that has gone its own way. We've gone our own path. We've gone 
and done everything that we just thought is right in our own eyes. And at the end of the day, we've just not simply acknowledged or loved or attributed our life, our value, our gift back to God, our Creator. And what's happened as a result of that, we've incurred, we've brought upon ourselves this, this wrath of God. Yes, He loves us, but yes, He's also angry at the fact that we have sinned. But the story of the cross is mercy triumphs over judgment. We talk about the love of God. We cannot understand the love of God apart from understanding the cross. We really can't. We can't understand the depth of God's love apart from understanding what Jesus comes to rescue us from. Hence, the suffering, the rejection, and the death. On the cross, He experiences this moment where He cries out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In that moment, in that instant, this fellowship that Jesus has always had with the Father was severed. Separation from the Father. Separation from the love of God. Was the depth of eternal hell. That's what we experience in our own sin. Is separation from God. There's a fire that's burning in our hearts. Hell. And one day, when we die, should Christ not intervene and save us, then that fire will continue to burn. Continue to burn. That is hell. It's this condemnation. It's this recognition that we have now made a choice and a decision to be apart from God. It's this idea, one of the one of the most horrible things that could happen is if somebody's in a place of their life and they keep saying, just leave me alone. Just leave me alone. And at some point, God says, Thy will be done. And He leaves us alone. And that's hell. It's separation from this light and life of God. And Jesus comes into this world to suffer, to be rejected, to be killed to drink the full cup of the separation so that we don't have to. That's what Jesus does on the cross. He pays for our penalty. He becomes, that's what Peter says, the righteous dies for the unrighteous so that we might become the righteousness of God. That's what Jesus does for us on the cross. He dies in our place. Dies for us. Takes the penalty for our sin. So that we can have life. So that we can have life. That's what Jesus does. He experiences hell so that we can have heaven. Have life. Have God. That's what He does. One of my favorite preachers, a guy by the name of Martin Lloyd-Jones, used to tell this story. Basically, the story goes something like this, that if you were to go away on a far, on a journey, you come back to your house... Maybe the person that was staying at your house tells you, hey, listen, uh, I paid a bill for you. If you're away and you have no idea what that bill is, it's hard for you to really even be thankful for that because you don't know if the bill was, you know, 
the newspaper bill, which is maybe like 20 bucks, or if the bill was the IRS finally tracked you down. Loan officers have finally caught up to you. You don't know. You don't know the depth of how to respond to that. So in, in reality, you don't know how to respond to, under, to understand without understanding what the price was that was paid. I mean, without understanding the price that was paid, you don't know whether to shake the guy's hand or to fall on his feet and kiss him. And that's what the cross does to us. When we understand the depth of what Jesus endured for us on the cross, what He had gone through, what He had endured for us, tasting hell, drinking it to the fullest, satisfying the wrath of God, and yet offering life to those who would trust and believe. We don't know whether to just say, thank you God, or fall on our knees and kiss His feet. That's what the cross teaches us. It's the love of God revealed. One of the last words that Jesus said on the cross just before dying. He stretched out His hands as He was speaking to the Father. It's a handful of words that He said. But one of the last words He said is He cried out. He says, gave up his ghost and died. The Greek word means paid in full. Jesus paid in full the price for your sin. The price for your sin. To give you heaven, life, the gift of God, the gospel is not to just make your life better. It is God giving you Himself to His life forevermore. I want to finish by reading a little passage in Isaiah. I want you to just bow your heads, close your eyes. I want you to listen to it. Nick's going to come up and lead us in some worship. We just wait on God. We have communion available. One of the things that Jesus said to His disciples was... Do this in remembrance of me. Every time you eat the bread, drink the cup, remember what I did for you on the cross. Remember the depth of my love. Remember the price which I paid. Remember the suffering I endured for you. Remember the rejection that I endured for you. The death I paid for you. Remember that. So we're going to partake of that. If you're here and you're not a Christian, I encourage you to not partake of the communion. We have the communion tables right here. There's another one back there. So feel free to come up when you'd like. Take the bread. Dip it into the cup. Don't drink the cup. Dip it in the cup. And then you can either just go back to your seats or just find a place and just worship. We're going to just have sort of an extended time of waiting upon God and worshiping Him. And just rather than just trying to rush out of here, if you need to leave, please feel free to leave. But it's time for us to wait upon God and let Him just minister to us. Worship really is the response that we give back to God really in proportion to our understanding of His Word. So I want you to listen to this little passage in Isaiah. Chapter 53 says this. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. 
He shall be high and lifted up, and He shall be exalted. As many as were astonished at you, His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, and His form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall He sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of Him. For that which has not been told them, they say, and that which they have not heard, they understand. Who has believed what they have heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For He grew up before Him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. And He had no form or majesty that we should look at Him and no beauty that we should desire Him. He was despised and rejected by men. He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, He was despised and we esteemed Him not. Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His stripes, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to His own way. And the Lord laid on Him our iniquity. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet He opened out His mouth. Like a lamb that was led to the slaughter. Like a sheep before His shears is silent. So He opened out His mouth. By oppression and judgment, He was taken away. And as for His generation who considered that He was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of My people, and that they may made His grave with the wicked and with the rich man in His death, although He had done no violence and there was no deceit in His mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush Him. He was put Him to grief. When His soul makes an offering for sin, He shall see His offering. He shall prolong His days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in His hand. Out of anguish of His soul, He shall see and be satisfied. And by His knowledge shall the righteous, shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. He shall bear their iniquities. Jesus cried out, It is finished. Before we worship, I want you guys to take that piece of paper. Take the piece of paper which you wrote your sins on. Hopefully you did. I want you to fold it in half. Fold it in half. Sins inside. And on the outside, I want you to write on that. Paid in full. Paid in full. Right? Forgiven. Right? Accounted for. That's what Jesus did for you. Because He loves you. The depth of the love of God is seen through the cross. In the depth of the suffering Jesus endured. Let's respond to Him. Let's worship. Partake of communion. Take it when you're ready. We'll just worship. We'll wait upon God a little bit. And um, Jesus, thank You for the cross. We thank You for what You did for us. Thank You for Your suffering. 
We just worship you now, Lord.